0: Hi and welcome to the Msingi Talks podcast, a podcast hosted by Msingi Trust. This podcast ventures deeper into issues of faith, advocacy, activism, and makes connections between these worlds. Psalms 89.14 states that justice and righteousness are the foundation of God's throne, and here we unpack how the church, as the body of Christ and institution, can faithfully embody justice and righteousness in both word and deed. Karibuni and let's do justice. Everybody, and welcome to Msingi Talks, a podcast hosted by Msingi Trust. And I'm very excited to host my friends, my brothers, my co conspirators, amazing men, um, Jared McKenna and Drew Hart. Yay! 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 (laughs)
1: This
0: is Jared's third time on the podcast I think. Is it really? Drew, yes it is and then this is Drew's first time.
2: I'm a newbie. Drew where you been? I don't know but I've been waiting you know I've been waiting this is the place I've been waiting for. Um, Late so to the excited. party. Drew. I'm excited yeah. to be invited into the to this very important
1: space. And and awesome. I'm just a so warm Such up. Such an out.
0: honor to pick <laughs> up yeah, I feel like I've known you guys for much longer than I have because all of lockdown we've really spent a lot of a weeks.
2: lot of time together.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. We have. So, Jared, no, I think who we I
1: think we spend about 8 hours a week together, actually.
0: Yes. Yep. That's a long time. <laughs> I'm not complaining. <laughs> <laughs> God, <you're> bad. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm like, yeah, we do. So maybe we can start with introductions for for people who are meeting you guys for the first time. Who is Jared and who is Drew? Can start with you, Drew? Drew
1: you, you go first. Okay. Yeah.
2: Um, I am, let's see, son of Tony and Carol Hart. I'm really from Philly um, and uh, PK, a pastor's kid. I don't know if that's an acronym that's used everywhere. Um, raised in a black church. Um, have had too much theological education in a lot of different <laughs> kinds of institutions. Um, so now I'm a professor in theology at Messiah University. I'm married, um, my wife Renee and three kids, Micah, Dietrich and Vincent. Uh, we live in Harrisburg, um, which um, was uh, the traditional name of the land is the, Susque- the land of the Susquehannock. Um, here at Central PA. I am involved in a whole bunch of different stuff here in Harrisburg, um, one of them being a co-leader for a group called Free Together, which is involved in mobilizing um, churches to partner and, and work for good with activists and organizers in our city, and also more newly um, running a program at Messiah called Thriving Together, which is... <sighs> helping, uh, come, We got a huge grant, it's, it's, it's dirty money, it's pharmaceutical money, but we'll take it. Um, but it's uh, helping to run a program to partner with congregations to work for racial justice, understanding the history of this land and how racial segregation came to develop the way that it has um, and how we can create access uh, for more people to thrive in our communities. Um, I'm an author. I've written two books, Trouble I've Seen and Who Will Be a Witness? And most importantly, um, co-hosts for Inverse Podcasts alongside Jared, Um, and so it's been good this past year causing trouble with him on a global level and then ultimately then causing trouble with you, Carol, with the broader Inverse community. Um, And so I guess that's some of who I am. I mean, I guess we go in different directions, but but um, I'm just really grateful to be here on the podcast and to be uh, causing more good trouble with both of you.
0: Karibu uh, sana to Tunsinghi Talks, the podcast. This is your your first time. So we are rolling out the red carpet for you, Drew.
1: Oh, um. I feel it. I feel the love.
0: <laughs> yes. Jared. Who are
1: well, you? Yeah, this this is like my th- third time. So I, I feel a little bit like furniture now. Like people... Yeah. Um, uh, who, who am I? Uh, I I am the brother of Carol and Drew. And uh, I, I love working with you both. I, I love the larger Inverse Missingi community and what we're doing together across time zones and countries and continents and large bodies of water. Um, I mean... Drew started with with his parents. Uh, m- maybe I'll do the same. Uh, Drew's a PK. Uh, I, I, I'm an MK. Uh, I'm not a Preacher's kid. I, I'm a Monk's kid, which <laughs> is a little is a little rarer. My my dad was a monk, um, so I'm, I'm the son of uh, Faye and Bernie McKenna, and um, uh, Bernard was once a monk. Obviously, isn't a monk anymore because I'm here, and so um, he he migrated to Australia from Ireland in 1972. And uh, in 2015, I got to go to um, the monastery that he was a part of just outside of Dublin for the first time uh, with him, which was really special. Um, uh, I'm outside the family, I'm Jew-ish. Um, so <laughs> that Jew ish, so secular Jews, so Jew ish, uh, d- didn't grow up with a, a strong sense of. Um, uh, a Jewish, uh, ritual or, um, just the anti-Semitism, just the, <laughs> just the experience of, um, uh, discrimination, uh, dad's side, um, uh, Irish Catholic, uh, dad is, uh, one of, he's, he's got seven brothers and four sisters. So I have 31 cousins on that side of the family. Um, and so there's only my sister and myself. So we're smaller and, um, we, we've, we've grown up on, uh, Wadjuk Nunga Budja, which um, uh, is the unceded lands of the Noongar people, which you'll find on a map as Perth, Australia. And um, uh, in terms of how I've spent my adult life, um, last Sunday I, I preached at a church in person because restrictions have lifted in, in Perth, Australia. So um, I got to not preach to a screen carol. I got to preach to real people. And even though we weren't I'll passing the piece...
0: That you can look at their face and...
1: That's and, like and, we could share yeah. communion and and know that we are all tasting what was once the same loaf instead of oh. <laughs> everybody run to their fridge as we share communion. Yes, on Zoom. yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: And we all um, take different things, yeah.
1: Yeah, so I was... Uh, uh, that was at the invite of somebody who I lived with um, in a Christian student movement household when I was 22 before starting... The Peace Tree community, um, uh, where we, uh, had, we were intentional uh, commune, uh, neo monastic expression of what it was um, to, to be church together, um, had a, a rhythm of, of prayer and of service, um, taught nonviolence uh, uh, to activists, as well as ran a permaculture garden in the local neighborhood and a Sunday school and, uh, practice hospitality for people returning from prisons and, um, uh, got started, uh, welcoming people who were asylum seekers and refugees. And that then grew into first home project where I lived for eight years with nearly over a hundred refugees, um, uh, providing them a place to find their feet, develop a rental mm-hmm. history and, uh, um, a, a place to, to stay as, as well as pastoring and um, uh, in, in a church setting that was more conventional and uh, doing things like being the national advisor for World Vision Australia um, for faith and activism and um, uh, starting Common Grace, which now has over 50,000 members in Australia working for Jesus and justice. So there's there's little bits and pieces of uh, the stuff that kind of makes up my life, um, as well as uh, being a dad to, to Tyson, who's now big, and uh, Winnie, who's not as big, Hugo, who's less big, and Noah, who's uh, not yet one.
0: Oh, Noah is, the, is so cute. The others are cute, but Noah is
1: like a <laughs> <laughs> um, I geez. think he's pretty adorable too. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> cool. So we, we've been talking a lot over the past year, and um, I think the common thread that runs... Uh, Amongst us is the the desire to connect justice and um, the work and the callings that we are in and um, and that's not that's not in my setting and maybe in yours it's different, but I'd like maybe to hear from you, drew, where you you started connecting the world of faith and justice because of your background and all that where did you connect those two worlds because uh yeah I feel like we've in the past year that's all that you've been talking about but what was the first seed that was planted for you uh on that yeah
2: yeah that's a great question um and in some ways it the earliest of that is is a very nuanced and complicated answer because, on one hand, I would say the faith community that was born into maybe I, w- I wouldn't say that they erased justice, but I don't think it was as central and as important. But it wasn't. But it also wasn't absent. Like. Like my community, it wouldn't have been, like there's some faith communities where like, if you talk about like justice, they they think you're like you know uh, a heretic or something like that. That would not have been the faith community that I was born into. But um, the gospel had nothing to do directly with justice. If it was someone asking, what's the gospel? And what, is, what does it mean for us? Um, justice would not have been mentioned as a part of that answer, right? Um, and so it was still peripheral. Um, so one of the things that were really significant for me in understanding how justice relates to my faith um, began really when I went to um, college. It was I was an undergraduate uh, biblical studies major and there for the first time, I mean it was just in my face, right? Um, and I had to wrestle and think through and I had professors who were really just thoughtful and helped just expose me and help me think about the scriptures, theology, uh, religious traditions in the U.S. and what had been what uh, both good and bad, the ugly and the good and the beautiful. Um, and so all of that was really transformative, but it wasn't actually in some ways like where I am now today, I don't think has as much to do with only the learnings that I was having in the classroom. It was actually some bad experiences I was having among, among student peers, right? Um, so this was the first time in my life as an adult, all of a sudden, I'm interacting with white American Christians, right on a on a Christian campus. And I'm experiencing more racism than I had ever experienced before. in terms of, just, you know, people thinking like black folk are thugs and just different stuff like that. And just kind of thrown off. Cause I'm, I went in there thinking like, Oh, these are my brothers and sisters in Christ, you know? And so <laughs> for me, um, it really threw me off and I had to like do some like soul searching to kind of understand how this could be. And so I began to, after that, just take this dive of just really digging deep, because I couldn't understand how this gospel, which I was learning more and more, had so much to do with justice, right, and God's dream for us. And what does that mean for um, a church, certainly in the United States, and certainly very much in terms of the Western church globally, in terms of just the amount of violence and injustice and oppression that it has been complicit in, right? Right. Um, so that drove me, it was actually my questions, um, that drove me to go deeper in the direction I was. So immediately after I was, I was a youth pastor at a church for a while, um, in the city that was trying to work some of this stuff out in some ways. Um, then I went back to school to dig deeper. I didn't get fully everything I was looking for at the first one, but, but I, I was getting what I wanted out of it. Cause you know, you supplement, right. And yeah. And so this journey, um, it was trying to both then marry education with practice. Um, yes. And the further I went, the more I tried to just um, find other folks that I could come alongside, co-labor with, learn from, um, but also bring all of who I am and all of my understanding of my faith into that. Um, so for me, like I'm at the point like it's so hard for me to understand now, like. <sighs> just the hostility towards justice that is in some Christian spaces like for me I don't quite fully understand how we can even at the most simplest level um, say we love our neighbors uh, but then be so hostile towards justice right it's just so especially the United States it's just a huge thing but yeah so this process of just coming alongside others learning from others partnering with others um, and then doing the work, writing, thinking, speaking, engaging, training, all that kind of stuff. Um, just, it's just been a journey. But it really, I always point back to my time on campus as the starting point for that. That was a pivotal paradigmatic shift for me in terms of just, you know, expanding my own understanding of the good news of Jesus Christ and what it means for justice, but also then wrestling deeply with just the horrific you know, past that the church has had both in the United States and around the world. Drew,
0: mm. Drew I'm wondering maybe the, the resistance to justice in many of our churches is because we would be required to also be, be just if we, if we yeah. embody justice, you know. Right. That's, as you're speaking, that's what I'm thinking, that maybe we are so resistant to justice to justice because then it would be required of us yeah yeah
2: we'd have to actually Mm -hmm. be just as well right it's not just Mm -hmm. i always say like and to be fair like i think that in many progressive christian spaces people want justice out there but they don't want to realign their own lives to justice necessarily and i think that that Mm -hmm. is some of the harder work because you also have to do yeah, we got to examine, do critical analysis of what's happening in our society, but we got to do some self examination about our own lives, right, and our own commitments, and what we're willing to, uh, how we're willing to change, um, to align with that kind of justice that's good for all, especially those who are most vulnerable. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Drew. Jared, do you remember when you brought the two together, faith and justice?
1: Carol, there is a there are ways I can answer this honestly without actually making myself vulnerable. but I, I, I love and trust you both so much and I'm, I'm going to pretend that it's just us talking and uh, and and trust Missingi uh, l- listeners with this as well. but there, there are ways for me to answer that honestly, where I don't need to expose myself. Um, I think I think mercy and Jesus always went together. For, for me, um, both in terms of the faith that I received from my parents, um, uh, watching them open their home as I grew up to uh, victims of domestic violence and um, the children uh, of those kind of situations of uh, watching how they responded to people in need, uh, watching um, uh, the way uh, they served people who were homeless, um, uh, watching their own practice and um, I mean, my dad was a union organiser for the Miscellaneous Workers' Union. Um, So that kind of uh, blue-collar working class um, uh, movement building from below was a part of my family's um, uh, experience. But I I never experienced what... um, uh, I, I grew up in Australia and I grew up white in Australia. And it, it wasn't until I actually um, experienced injustice that um, all these questions came up for me around Jesus and justice. Um, and it might sound like a bit of an odd thing to do because like I was a kid, um, since, since I gave my life to Christ in high school, uh, I started um, uh, serving at Amnesty International as an outworking of my faith. Like I, I knew that Jesus meant, that we were to be merciful and to care for people, um, in situations, uh, whether it be, um, death row or persecution or for a variety of, of, different reasons. Um, but it wasn't until if I'm honest and I mean, uh, served in like Matthew 25 ministries, which were really soup kitchens that, um, again, it was kind of like the works of mercy, um, uh, But it wasn't until I actually uh, exposed a pedophile and then saw an institution which I deeply loved and served um, that it wasn't a a giant church. It was a church no more than 300 people, 150 of which um, were literally my friends. Uh, When I came to faith, it was a house church. There was my sister, myself, two other girls, um, our age, and our youth group was made up of kids who were our mates that we invited along. And um, only by the time we're in final year of high school, uh, a a youth group of of literally 150 kids with um, only eight of us having Christian parents and the rest um, coming and and coming to faith, um, uh, not because of altar calls or smoke machines or having a band. I mean, we didn't even have instruments. Like it um, it was literally a loving, warm community. And yet there was this predator in the midst of that, who was the pastor. And when I exposed that and um, was blamed for it, was told that um, quote unquote, I'd led him astray. And then realizing that there were nine under, other victims and we didn't know about that. Mm. Um, and then people helping him skip the country, which included lying to police and selling his house and selling his car and um, smuggling him out of the country and then um, getting him set up again. Um, And I I was 19 years old when that all, when I exposed stuff, that all went down. And then um, nearly a year later, my best friend died of a, a drug overdose. And uh, he never came to Christ. Like so many of my friends came to Christ that um, I ended up baptising where we would go for a surf and uh, the whole church community coming out on the beach. And we saw so many um, uh, beautiful, incredible things happen in our friends' um, lives. And I always thought my best mate, um, that that was inevitable. That um, And in, instead of that, um, he died with a, a needle in his arm. And... Um, Uh, my theology didn't work when I was supposed to do his eulogy. I, I, um, I had this really weird thing happen this week where we had a very hot day, um, this past week, um, Carol and Drew, and one of our chickens died. And, uh, um, it was something about the weight of the chicken's body. It was our largest chicken that reminded me of the weight of Steve's body, um, after he died and it was really triggering for me. It was, it was really, and the amount of stuff that came out around responsibility. It was my responsibility to give water to the chickens. And um, one of the ways that I have avoided the, um, the meaninglessness of Steve's death was um, guilt. That meant that I had some sort of control if I could blame myself then I had like a a way of actually understanding what was actually quite meaningless. Um, And that that's very fresh for me this week because, and it's weird how those things work, right? The weight of a chicken in your hands, like, and how, it like, um, so they're the things that initially, so 19 exposing everything, 20 Steve dying and realizing that I don't actually believe my own theology. Like, I was supposed to give the eulogy, and I'm like, if I'm more compassionate than God, then God isn't like the Jesus I worship. Yeah. And everything fell apart for me in that moment. Um, and people said at the funeral, we don't know where Steve's heart was in those final moments. Maybe he gave his heart to the Lord. And I'm like, I can't worship somebody who is less compassionate than me, because I, with everything. I want the healing for Steve. If God is not at least as loving as I am and his best friend, then God doesn't look like Jesus. Mm -hmm. And then um, uh, at 21 years old, what's interesting is that it's all within a couple of weeks prior to these birthdays. Um, So my birthdays are sometimes difficult times for me. Um, September 11th happened. And I was living in the US at the time. And so for a number of levels, um, the experience of an institution that was there to protect us, literally the sanctuary became a place not of prayer, um, but of becoming prey. And then the experience of death and realising that I had a theology that wasn't shot through with um, something that was Jesus-like. Instead, um, I I realised that there were ways that my evangelical passion worked that actually were deeply unchrist like and then the experience of being in america on september 11th and feeling so alienated from how america dealt with it and uh, the experience of um uh like american imperialism um uh being the default grieving instead of lamenting and how christians were caught up all of those things made um, shape me deeply. And I often don't talk about those things because I I feel very exposed at a number of those points in in telling that story.
0: Thank you so much, Jared, for sharing that and uh, for being vulnerable and allowing us into your heart and into those deep moments of pain. Um, would you would you differentiate justice and mercy and how would you do that
2: yeah I mean I think I would probably I mean I like the way that um, Jared framed it and this is kind of the language that I was kind of taught which was to talk about mercy ministries um, and to differentiate that from justice and so mercy ministries being the kind of ministries that are caring for individuals um, in their need, in their struggles, helping them through, giving them access, uh, but not necessarily changing the very structures and conditions that create the problems to begin with, right? So it's like the phrase, you know, they say, um, you know, you teach them, ma- uh, give a man a fish and eat for a day, teach a man a fish and he um, eat for a lifetime, but then we don't ask, you know, what happens when someone doesn't have access to the pond, right? Um, yeah. that, that's the game changer at that point, right? So when, then it doesn't matter about teaching them to fish or anything. You've got bigger structural issues. Maybe you got to bring a wall down. Um, and so I think that um, we need sometimes some para- paradigm shifts. I think that in many churches, they're so focused on mercy ministries um, and helping individuals and certainly in the United States, I mean, we're the probably the most hyper-individualistic nation state, I think, I imagine in, in, the, in the world at the moment. And so there's not even imagination for most people for thinking about systems and structures and policies and the very conditions that we create that, that, that help promote poverty and disparities and um, lack of access, right? And so that's the bigger stuff. Um, and so for me, justice at, at its heart is about, um, just pursuing what God intended for creation and for all God's creatures, right? Um, not what is, but what God dreams up for us, what God intends for us. That's really what justice is on a bigger scale and go, seeking to set things right back in order with uh, aligning with God's reign um, over all creation. So good.
0: That's amazing, Drew, as you are speaking, I think I've never thought of it this way. I think for me, as you're speaking now, I'm beginning to sense that justice is going back to the, to the end of the day, the narrative of creation, when God sat down and looked at everything God had created and said, it is very good that the relationship between man and earth, man and, and wife, uh, man and God, that it was very good. And yeah. so that the pursuit of justice is the pursuit of the very good. And as our friend Lisa Sharon Harper says, right. the very good was the, you know, Right, right.
2: Yeah, yeah. that's what yeah. I was thinking of immediately once you started saying that. I was like, <laughs> yeah. oh, that sounds like Lisa. But I yeah. think there's something really important about the idea that certainly Western Protestantism Starts loves to start the conversation at, you know, the fall and, and to the sinfulness and, you know, or, um, you know, totally depra- depraved humanity or whatever it is, you know, um, and that's the starting point for theological imagination. And that that's only going to lead you in certain places, right? Um, it's not going to give you an imagination for what God dreams up and for what God intends for us. yeah
1: It's so odd in a way that sin doesn't actually like occur in the Genesis text right. until chapter right. four. Right. Like even in chapter three, there's it's it's not until Cain kills Abel and there's talk of sin crouching at the door that um, yet people are so um, so fixated on um, not so much a doctrine but an ideological distinction. I love that James Allison, who uh, for those interested, you can go back and listen to our podcast with James Allison uh, on, on Inverse. He talks about how. Um, Uh, sin is not something we really know until we have undergone forgiveness, Mm. Mm. which I I love. Like that is someone who understands that um, resurrection makes us view all things differently, Mm. including a brokenness in relationships, um, be they subtle psychologies that we hold in ourselves that um, uh, make room for domination or violence or supremacies, uh, or be be they systems that foster um, violence, um, supremacies and and domination. Um, But once we've actually tasted something of the resurrection in the new world that God ushers in, um, uh, this healing of all things, the things being made right, um, a, a love that will be all in all, then we can see things clearly, um, that don't fit with that beautiful picture that we see in Jesus, um, which is uh, so often Christians are trying to convince people that something is wrong before showing them the beauty of the new world that God dreams of and has become a waking reality in Jesus. Um, that to go back to your initial question carol uh, one of the things that comes to mind for for me a, a huge hero for both um, drew and i uh, drew so much that one of his his children are named after bonhoeffer um bonhoeffer talked about that we're not merely to bandage the victims underneath the wheels of injustice but we're to drive a spoke in the wheel itself and i think about the works of mercy as bandaging the victims and the church must be there and i think the church must be there to um uh, see the truth, speak the truth, hear the cries, um, At risk actually um, falling underneath those wheels themselves. And that that kind of um, proximity to the pain of those who experience that means that there can be diagnoses of the injustice, which aren't abstract, but instead prophetic. Um, and then we must get on with the business of justice, which is stopping that wheels turning and more blood being spilt. Um yeah. We are our brothers and sisters' keeper, uh, but sin continues to crouch at the door in inviting us to think of ourselves as individualised and not belonging to each other.
0: Wow. Man, see, guys, why we spend time with each other? These guys are so, <laughs> <laughs> so, so clever. So but, um we were thinking about the topic to talk uh, for our conversation today, and this I think really sets us up properly uh, when I talk about good trouble. And,
1: I, I feel like doing a Masingi welcome, <laughs> Woo. John Lewis. Good, good trouble. trouble. Woo. That's, it.
0: That's it. Yeah, and um, to stop to bandage because sometimes even the actual bandaging of wounds puts us in trouble. Like mm. it's not just the putting. It, did you call it the spoke? Spoke in
2: the wheel, right?
0: Yeah, the spoke in the wheel is is real trouble. Sometimes even the act of um of bandaging the wounded puts yeah. you in trouble. And um, we, one of our our heroes, um, John Lewis, said, "Get in good trouble." necessary trouble and help redeem the soul of America. And was talking about the America, but I would say get in good trouble, necessary trouble and help redeem the soul of Australia and help redeem the soul of Kenya, help redeem the soul of, of the world. What, what does what is that uh arousing you drew the i mean good trouble
2: yeah i mean and maybe it's because i'm a, a bible geek but i can't not think then of the jesus story right like that's what comes first in my mind when you ask me that is jesus getting himself into some really good trouble um jesus i it's fascinating for me how domesticated jesus is in so many churches right i mean jesus i mean whether you're looking at Matthew, Mark, or Luke, which is the climax of the story, Jesus clashing with the establishments and shutting the place down, or with the Gospel of John, where it's like, no, he's 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 a badass from the very beginning, right? He's stuck getting right. into trouble <laughs> from the very start. He's yeah. in the establishment confronting, and then everything flows from there. Um, yeah. and, but, I mean, it's just fascinating how the Gospel writers are describing Jesus's life and character and person and his relationship with the with the power brokers, um, and the way that he refuses to be complicit and silent and apathetic to all that's going on. So that's the first thing. But then, for me, um, you know, what was life changing for me in terms of even beginning to imagine that work in my own life was studying the life of Dr. King first, and then beginning to mm. study and learn more and more about the freedom movements uh, much more broadly after that, right? Um, but to to think about people, actual story, because I mean, we all need um, an imagination for the work, right? <laughs> we all need an entry point. Like sometimes if you don't have something to be looking at, um, it, it can kind of limit your imagination, restrict the possibilities of what faithfulness can look like. And so for me, it was Dr. King's life um, as his journey I just find it fascinating for me just personally as he struggled, made mistakes, learned from others and kind of grew in the work, um, mentored into the work. And so I think that for me, his story um, has always been meaningful. And then to learn about so many, just the many, many folks throughout the freedom struggle. And I don't even just mean the fifties and sixties, but the in the, the fullest sense of the freedom struggle here in the United States, um, just, yeah, the resistance, the courage, the coordinating, the planning, the strategy, the the subversive actions that were being happening, right? Even under slavery, we're talking about Vincent Harding, right? Um, His work on uh, African-Americans and slavery in the book, There is a River, right? Just a beautiful picture of uh, folks who, otherwise sometimes get described almost as if they don't have agency, but they'd had lots of agency and were engaging and resisting in a whole variety of ways, right? Some of them burning their fields or breaking tools. Some of them stealing away some, all kinds of stuff, underground rail, so much stuff is happening. And I think that the more that I learn about um, that um, just the different ways that people have actually lived this out, it just opens me up to so much that is possible and the ways that I can co-conspire with my own neighbors and friends and leaders here in my own city, um, given, you know, the, the, the realities that are impacting some of my neighbors. And so, yeah, those are the, some of the things that, but, but I do, I, 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 for me, the Jesus story comes first. Like that's what triggers for me. Cause that, that has always been my inspiration. And that has always been the thing that says, all right, Drew, this is what faithfulness looks like. Right. And, mm-hmm. um, and without that, um, in some ways that I'm denying actually, actually desiring to actually follow Jesus. Mm-hmm.
0: But Drew, for, for many, especially in, in the Kenyan and African context, Jesus is gentle. Jesus meek and mild.
2: You know, right, 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 right. right. Everywhere, I always tell it's the uh, the the head of Christ image, which is everywhere. It's the famous like white Jesus, where he's like gazing up into the sky, (laughs) and his hair is flowing. He looks like he just came from like a spa or sauna. He's just so calm, (laughs) so calm. Not a worry in the world. There's nothing to be concerned about. There's no suffering in the world. Everything is good, you know, Um, and that's the Jesus that we worship.
0: we're we're meant to 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 look up to we are meant to emulate we are meant to mm-hmm. and so that what that does and us having and especially and we as we speak in in our book studies is that that was an intentional framing of jesus you know mm-hmm. an intentional different what what's the right english deframing unframing reframing one of those of jesus
2: yeah. to
0: to to ensure that that we just see a Jesus who really is not concerned about governance is not concerned about justice is not concerned about poverty and oppression, and we need to and that's why we have thingy talks. That's why we have inverse uh, podcasts. That's why we have subversive seminary. So I have liberating Sunday school and so many other spaces is unmasking that Jesus, you know, mm-hmm. Jared.
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm struck so often. You spend any time in the Gospels, like I think a lot of Christians would turn around to Jesus and say, "That's not very Christ-like." That's right. (laughs) Like (laughs) you shouldn't you shouldn't speak to the religious authorities like that. They're not a brood of vipers. They're trying very hard. It's it's very difficult situation. Um, whitewashed tombs, like I think you're judging Jesus. I don't Mm -hmm. think you should be referring to people as all this stuff about they travel over land and sea to win one convert and make them twice twice the son of hell than you are. I don't think you should be talking like that about using that kind of language. It's like there's so many times when um, uh, if you spend time with the Jesus in the Gospels, uh, Jesus of any depiction is a snapshot. And, um, uh, Jesus of the gospels is always on the move and yeah. to get a good look at Jesus, you have to move with him. Uh, well, mm-hmm. one of the things the Holy spirit does, it's, it's very hard, um, to be about discipleship and spend all your time sitting still. Mm-hmm. Now there are some people who move all the time and it's a frantic kind of movement. It's not a spirit filled kind of movement, but, um, uh, yes, for like going off and, and getting time, um, and, and then coming back out of prayer, but it's then getting caught up in the actual work. I, I think one of the helpful things about John Lewis, who, you know, that, um, uh, Reverend Jim Lawson, James Lawson, who's a massive influence on, on, uh, Drew and I, and, um, one of our heroes, he was asked once, um, do you think like people refer to John Lewis as a saint? Um, but in terms of, and they were asking, um, Jim Lawson as, as a reverend, they're like, but in terms of like, like, the Christian idea of a saint, um, uh, not just the New Testament, we are um, the community of saints, but like, do you really think Jim, uh, do you really think John Lewis is a saint? To which Jim Lawson said, yes, an actual saint, <laughs> which I just absolutely uh, I love. And part of his his journey was one of his first experiences of being beaten by a police officer, he told the police, um, "We are not here to cause trouble. We're here so that people might love one another." Mm-hmm. And it's only as he deepened in that desire for people to love one another, and you saw his activism move into the, you know, the life-risking provocation of um, uh, becoming a freedom rider. and and what those buses going down um, into those towns meant and the kind of, uh, you know, demonic forces that came to the surface surface as they drove their buses in and drove demons out, that um, he realised that go cause good trouble because that makes it possible for people to love one another. So I would encourage any listener, wherever we're at in the journey, maybe John's gospel is too difficult to start with Jesus turning over tables at the start. So spend time in the synoptic so you can get there in the end, but there has to be a point at some stage where we realize that if we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to have to be okay with kind of animal liberation um, because we have spent enough time with Jesus that we realize the one that he refers to as Abba in prayer desires, no more blood be shed. So we're going to drive our animals. So no more blood be shed. in justice. Those tables be overturned and it might lead to crucifixion before the week's out, but we need to be really realistic about um, uh, what the cross does and doesn't mean and what it means to deny ourselves which self, (laughs) Mm -hmm. take up our cross, what kind of cross, and Mm -hmm. follow me and understand what that really entails.
0: The the Swahili Word Meaning Foundation. Our name and mandate comes from Psalms 8914. We host engaging conversations on faith, social justice and advocacy across all our social media platforms. We also offer training and consultancy services to help you navigate the world of social justice and peace. To engage with us, visit our website ww.musingitrust.org. Follow us on all our social media handles at Musingitrust or email us on info at Gerald, it's like you feed. On my show notes because I wanted us to, <laughs> <laughs> to talk about one um, Romans thirteen and obeying government and mm. uh, because a lot of of Christians and uh, in, in our church we are taught to honor to honor government and I want to read Romans thirteen verse one and two. Um, All of you must obey the government rulers. Everyone who rules was given the power to rule by God. And all those who rule now are given that power by God. So anyone who is against the government is really against something God has commanded. Those who are against the government bring punishment. on themselves. Let me read the first three as well. People who do right don't have to fear the rulers, but those who do wrong must fear them. Do you want to be free from fearing them? Then do only what is right and they will praise you. <sighs> Drew, what does that? What what do read? We're reading that in light of that we are, We are asking the church to, and Christians and the body of Christ, to be more active in in citizen life and public uh, participation. But then, what that means is that you're going sometimes anti and counter government. Yet Romans thirteen, and which is used so so much by by church when you were crit- criticizing government, critiquing government, you told Romans 13 says. What what does Romans 13 say, Drew?
2: Yeah, well, number one, I mean, we've got to admit there's a lot of different interpretations on, 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 on this chapter, right? Chapter 13 is interpreted in a lot of different ways, even by folks that um, have problems with the idea of just uh, simply obeying it. Uh, but I do think, um, so I'll name a couple ways that I've heard, and I'm not an expert on this chapter. Let me just put that up front. So, in fact, I'm really curious to hear um, uh, Jared's interpretation as well. I'm, I'm curious um, what he sees in this text. But there's a couple ways that I've heard people, some people have just taken it flat, like, oh, this is just Paul. He doesn't know any better. Um, because you know the powers, you know he's just not being oppressed yet, and one day he will be. And if he had known later, he would have written something different, right? Like some people, I've heard people say that. I know some people would say that to be subject um, to the government doesn't mean what we think it means in terms of this kind of obedience and submission, but it's more positionality, I think, in terms of how we go about our position underneath. Um, and respecting it, but not necessarily obeying it in that kind of blind sense that we use the word to sub- subject yourselves in our own context. Um, I know that some scholars talk about um, the fact that Paul may actually be echoing the empire here. That's another reading, which is to say he doesn't actually believe this, but he's. But if you look at what happens before this text uh, in chapter 12 and what happens later in ch- uh, later in chapter 13, you have this love chapter where Jesus is really, uh, where Paul is echoing Jesus's Sermon on the Mount and the call to love one another. Um, and so, if we put that into context, right, the idea that um, right before that, from 12:9 all the way through 12:21, uh, we're told to endure in suffering, to uh, identify with those who are lowly and struggling, to not repay in kinds evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. Um, that um, echoing the Sermon on the Mount throughout, and then even chapter 13, 8 through 10, again, this emphasis on love being the fulfillment of what we're called to. Um, And so there's this radical way in which, at at the very minimum, there's a radical way of life um, that sounds very jesus like right before and afterwards. Some some people would say that Paul is echoing the empire, not necessarily teaching that point. Um, Mm -hmm. I think what is important for me, regardless of... Even if we take the more conservative that Paul is saying what maybe some of us 20th and 21st century hearers hear in this text, which is uh, that we're, let's say, imagine he's saying, obey everything that the government says, right? This is one text, one letter to one place. And I think what's important is also to recognize that we have a whole variety of um, texts throughout the Gospels and throughout, not just the Gospel, the Bible, that are wrestling with our relationship with the government's. Um, you think about the hebrew uh, tradition um there's a whole wide range of texts right that we could be also be looking at in terms of shadrach meshach and Abednego, right in terms of daniel and the lines then in terms of um moses before pharaoh even in the new testament jesus's relationship i mean in luke luke 13 jesus calls herod a fox right um in acts it says that they're not called to obey god i'm um, not to obey man but to obey god um there's a whole variety of ways and then the most radical of all i mean go to the book of revelation and read chapter 13 mm-hmm. and chapter 18 there you go. right <laughs> i mean it's just uh, the most Damning condemnation of empire and the authorities and the government um, system there that one can muster. I don't know if I could come up with something more powerful of an indictment on the empire than than chapter 13 and 18 of, of uh, Revelation. So, so what would it mean then to interpret this in a more contextual way and to say, you know, Paul is trying to give some advice um, also to a church in a particular historical moment does this reflect the kind of historical moments and the kind of ways that we need to engage? But again, some of that really depends on, I don't imagine that Paul is purely just telling us to just be purely obedient to the government authorities. Again, I'm very fascinated to hear um, how Jared reads um, that text in particular, but I I know for me, and I'm sure that um, he's picked that up, if you've been in enough Anabaptist spaces, they always force you to read chapter 12, right? And then Mm -hmm. that we read that in context and all of a sudden the simple, yeah, that context, right? And and so it doesn't make sense anymore um, if you just, rather than just plucking up this one little passage out of context and then universalizing it for all time and all peoples and
1: all spaces
2: and situations.
1: Mm. Yeah, so, so good. Well, um, I apologise if you heard me rustling through papers. I have in front of me, it's the um, Love Makes Away training manual. And on, on different pages of the training manual, we have quotes from different participants. Um, so here's uh, uh, Reverend Alexander um, uh, Sanger saying, it is time for some incarnational action, putting my body in the line for children whose bodies are behind wire. Um, so this is literally a manual to train um, uh Pastors, priests, nuns, worship leaders, um, even some rabbis participated in the movement. Here's another quote from um, a children's pastor saying, how can I care for a thousand children in our ministry? It's a big church. Um, And not speak out for the over a thousand children in detention. Um, On page 10 is my favorite quote in the whole booklet, and it's um, regarding Romans 13. In our second ever Love Makes Away action, we had a worship leader named Simone, who's at a very conservative uh, church, who was brought before her elders board um, for getting arrested um, as a worship leader in this movement um, to see children released from indefinite detention. And the only reason they're being held there is because they were refugees. And her response um, to this elder board about Romans 13, which they read out in front of her, Simone has been, I think she's done two years of a Bible college. Like she, it's, she hasn't been to seminary. She ha- like, and her response was regarding Romans 13, um, okay, but this is written by the same Paul who's writing from prison, right? That's right. <laughs> no. Exactly. And for me, it's it's the most perfect. I've heard so many different, like, explanations, like written papers. Um, I, I've been at theological symposiums where people have talked about this. And I always come back to Simone in front of this group of men at her church who were all elders, asking why she put her body on the line to be involved in nonviolent direct action, peacefully sitting in a politician's office, while singing hymns, but being unwilling to move until children are released from prison. And her answer to um, uh, these men in their suits with their furrowed brows and big Bibles is Paul was writing from jail. Surely Paul doesn't understand Romans 13 in a way that compromises and contradicts his own witness. So however we're going to read Romans 13, and I think it is a difficult text. There's no uh, shame in actually going, actually, this is is difficult to understand. But however we understand it, Paul's own life interprets this text, and his own life interprets the text in a way that is in keeping with Christ's own life. So if this apostle, in his witness to our Lord, finds himself incarcerated like our Lord did, Maybe we need to actually jump back into, as Drew said um, just before, um, in terms of Romans 12 um, and reading it in context, I actually think verse 16 is one of the most helpful things in reading it in context. Now, I've got NIV, the NIV with me. Um, this is my uh, preaching Bible, um, which N.T. Wright likes to joke is the nearly inspired version and verse 16 in the NIV reads, live in harmony with one another, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position, do not be conceited. All of that's good. What Sylvia Keys, Matt and Brian Walsh actually um, show is that the low position there, uh, and forgive my lack of Greek pronunciation, it, it actually means oppressed. Their translation of this text is walk yeah. with the oppressed, do not be proud, walk with the oppressed, do not be conceited. If we walk with the oppressed whose own experience is that of prison cells, we will know how to interpret Romans 13, Mm -hmm. like Simone, and we will be the kind of worship leaders where not simply the songs we sing, but the places our body is found as we read these scriptures in the places that Paul was, that our Lord was, and that the oppressed are now. And suddenly we go, um, isn't this the same guy who was writing half his epistles from prison? From prison,
0: uh, yeah. Oh. We just went to theological school. <laughs> Thank you, Jared.
1: <laughs> Thank you. So I just encourage everybody listening: if you ever get in trouble for um, living our Lord's nonviolence, just say, um, "Isn't this the same Paul who was writing half his letters from jail?" That's the mic drop moment. Just walk away there.
0: <laughs> yeah, And I think, I think we we forget we forget so much the context of much of what is written, and uh, I want to carry this also with that with something that we spoke about. Um, I think yesterday uh, at uh, liberating Sa- no subversive seminary about uh, taking up the cross and following Jesus because those um, I, f- I find that Romans thirteen could 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 be counter Rome, uh Matthew sixteen because Matthew sixteen twenty four tells us. Um, I want to read that. Matthew sixteen twenty four says, says, um, I read, um, I don't want to read from the message because I love the message. Uh, that's my...
1: Bless Brother Eugene, right?
0: Yes. Yeah, yeah I love the message. Um, Matthew, uh, NIV says... Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And um, yesterday, during subversive seminary, we were all talking about how we've sanitized what the cross is and what uh, what that actually means. It means when, when Jesus says, take up the cross and follow me, it means take up the, whatever it is, you're going to, to face the state's tools of uh, oppression and suppression. And so because of you doing uh, my work, because of you following me, be ready to take up your cross. The messy cross, the, the bloody cross, the the cross that exposes your nakedness um and actually thinking about at the cross you're also the shame is taken away because you you have so much oppression and you see i'm thinking about how in the garden you're naked not ashamed i'm wondering whether at the cross you're naked and ashamed or naked Mm. and unashamed Hmm. But uh, Matthew 16, 24 says, take up the cross and follow Jesus. (laughs) And taking up the cross, the cross is not the sign, as we know, of Christian faith. But in this text, God is, Jesus is saying, take up this tool, this tool of systemic oppression and follow me. Counter it. Do everything it needs uh, you that needs doing, so that oppression ceases. And what that definitely means is that you will face the same oppression. So, Drew, what does take up the cross and follow Jesus mean in context of of government, of trouble, of the Christian faith and church of your space in academia as well. What does yeah. that mean for you?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think for me, um, like the language, take up your cross, is another way of just Jesus inviting us to fully and faithfully follow him, right? To to fully participate in the reign of God, to fully take up his way, um, which includes clashing and confronting um, the powers and confronting evil in our world and accepting the consequences that come with it. And I think that it's not necessarily a, it's not a death wish. It's not a Mm. um, desiring harm upon oneself. Um, It's actually, in some ways, the strange way is that it's actually living more fully as God intends for us, which includes confronting with the evil, right? And that's where that cross comes in is, for me, is that that when we live in the way of Jesus, we do clash with the establishments, we do clash with empire, we do clash with the powers that are death dealing in our world, um, and we accept the consequences that come with that. Um, I know certainly in the United States, in my context, you know, people use the language cross for everything. I mean, you know, I joke with my students, I say, you know, you know, they they didn't get their parking spot at the mall and they're like, oh, it's my cross to bear for Jesus, you know, or someone gives them a funny look and they're like, this is my cross, this is Christian persecution, you know, or um, their electric blanket breaks down in, in the middle of winter, you know, and there's their cross to bear for Jesus, you know. I'm like, no, no, it's none of those things, right? The, the, what you've done is You've watered down and domesticated what they're talking about, which is state-sanctioned execution, (laughs) and you're trying to make it fit somehow to your comfortable American life. Um, But I think that um, when we actually take seriously the idea that Jesus actually is serious, that we would actually live faithfully and fully with integrity in the way of Jesus, um, both as individuals and as communities, that that, that by definition will mean clashing and confronting the powers that be. um, and so I think that that is really the the challenge and the invitation for us. Um, and it is an invitation to do the work. It is an invitation to get into good trouble. And it does mean for me at Messiah, I, I, my very, was it my first year my second year at Messiah? Um, so I'm putting my own institution on blast. I try not to get fired, but, uh, but every now and then you got to put your, so I, I was so upset with my own institution. I think it was the second year I found out that, um, that someone uh, over, I don't whoever's over, I don't know what they call it, what part of the institution, but they were outsourcing laundry to a prison for prison labor that was paying people seven cents or something like that an hour. I was furious. I mean, I was, and I would not, I mean, I was, I, I, I told people openly, I will get fired over this, but we're not gonna be doing this. And I went to the president, I, um, so I stirred up a lot of trouble there even very early, which usually people don't do when you don't have tenure, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. um, um, but I don't, you know, like I, and I, and I, sometimes I say just to be like, I don't need this job. I can find something you know, <laughs> but I, <laughs> half of it's a little bit of a dare for them. Like, but it's also that I'm willing to stir up trouble on this. Like there's certain things that I've got to be willing to do. And when our own institution is making decisions that are harmful for the most vulnerable in our society, and we call ourselves a Christian college, right? Jesus-shaped, right? Um, But yet departing from from life-giving ways and and participating in death-dealing practices, right? Um, That we've got to confront ourselves. And so, yeah, I do it in other ways, but also sometimes when you you have to accept risks, even upon yourself, when you don't necessarily know what's gonna happen um, from what you do and what you say, and so yeah, I think in our know, different ways, we've got to live fully into the way of Jesus with integrity.
0: Mm. I want to follow up on that before you jump in, Jared, because I want to also uh, ask and hopefully answer to Jared: Is what is the nature of empire, and that that brings a clash? What is it? Because we say that you will definitely come head to head with some of this. What is this about empire, about state, about authority, about um, some aspects of government that make it necessary for for the clash to happen?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, some of the ways I've thought about. I mean, I'd have to think even more because I'm sure there's so much more to it, but but I've always been just conscious of the ways that institutions and let's, I mean, we we all probably do this in some ways if we're going to be on like self-survival, right? <laughs> and one's own maintenance and, and the idea of the imagination that there's some kind of eternal permanence, right? Um, and so, I mean, I know for example, my, my institution, I'll go again to Messiah, like, and I I make it sound like I hate everything. It's not true, but there are ways in which they make decisions at times that will go against its own mission for the sake Mm. of the margin, right? The finances decisions, right? And so its survival becomes more important at times than um, what we say on paper we're about and who we're going to be and what we're going to pursue together. And so I think that um, that sense of survival that we're not willing to lose ourselves, right, um, for anything. <laughs> um, and so therefore try to hold on to everything and then therefore forsake everything. So I think that mm. that is probably at least a part of it, I think, is that there's this way in which institutions become become these beasts, these monsters that feed itself um, and depends on that kind of posture and self-sustaining in a way that has nothing to do with pursuing the well-being of all, has nothing to do with shalom, has nothing to do with our interdependence and mutuality with others. Um, It's just about that we've got to stay alive, that we've got to be maintained. And so when a threat comes, of course, you're going to, you got to crush it, right? I mean, that's Jesus... You can't come into Jerusalem, tell hey, you from Galilee, you're going to come up in here and tell us something. No, we're going to conspire. We're going to shut this down and we can squash this real quick.
0: Thank you, Drew. Thank you. Jared, I can't even remember the question now. We've talked about so many things. But,
1: um, uh, I think the question was, um, what does it mean to take up our cross? Yeah. yeah. Yes, yes yeah. that's it. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things come to mind for me. One of them being I love Philip and Daniel Berrigan and reading Philip Berrigan's autobiography, The Lamb's War, when I was 20, 21 years old, um, uh, living in the US, about the time that September 11th happened. And I know that because I got kicked out of my host family's home um, uh, because uh, the dinnertime conversations were no longer because I was asking questions about forgiveness as they were talking about launching a war and they didn't even know on whom. And uh, they were like, it's time for you to go. And I ended up living with Carl Meyer, who Carl had a photo in his living room of uh, uh, him in 67 in Chicago. He headed up the Catholic worker in Chicago and uh, had Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Nobel Peace Prize winning monk on one shoulder and Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King on the other shoulder. And uh, he gave me Philip Berrigan's um, uh, book and uh, told me that he disagreed with Philip but had been arrested with him um, a dozen times. (laughs) And uh, one of the favourite quotes um, from both the brothers for me is, if you're going to follow Jesus, you better look good on wood. Yeah. And uh, uh, my boys... um, you know, uh, 11 and th- 13 just in the last month. They've turned 11 and 13. And um, uh, they started saying crux around the house when something bad happened. They, they dropped something and they'd be like, oh, crux, and they would laugh and whatever. And Kat was like, where did this come from? And I, I was like, this might be my fault. I told him that um, in the ancient world, um, uh, crux or cross um, was the equivalent of the f word like that's how it, no one would say in polite company they'd talk of a cross like the, the the cross was literally capital punishment it was it was making a billboard of human bodies that disagreed with the empire who had the last word on reality and no one would mention a cross in polite company and so um this statement from me to um, my boys, uh, meant that they started using crux as a swear word around the house and they thought that was hilarious. And what I, I loved about that, though Kat wasn't incredibly keen on it, um, was that it it does highlight how we've, um, uh, to, to step into the vocab of Corner West, like there is a Santa clausification, not just of Martin Luther King, um, but of um, our Lord and the cross itself that we've um, uh domesticated and deodorised and sanitised the cross and turned it into something that is palatable, that people wear around their necks, instead of um, uh, when when we were uh, strip searched um, uh, as part of the Love Makes Away movement as a way of intimidating us as protesters, uh, they there was illegal strip searches that were used against those who um, had done a, a nonviolent sit-in Uh, including uh, not just younger people such as myself, but um, Rev Lorna, uh, an Anglican priest who uh, was in her mid-60s, a grandmother, and um, uh, evasive cavity searches to intimidate protesters um, to make sure that this grandmother, who was an Anglican priest, wasn't concealing drugs or weapons. Um, And there was was an investigation by the Corruption and Crime Commission Into this where they end up spending a million dollars of state money um, to instigate things that meant that this wouldn't um, happen again because it was seen to be abusive. Um, One of the things that we said when we went to court as we stood on the steps of the court and all the media cameras surrounded us um, is that our Lord underwent strip searches Um, and in fact what stands at the middle of our faith is a symbol of uh, terror, horror, and intimidation that Jesus has transformed into a symbol of faith, hope, and love. Mm. And if our Lord can take something like crux across this symbol and seen through the resurrection, we see it now as a symbol of faith, hope, and love, Um, I mean, this is leaning hard into James Cone to say there is nothing in our lives and in our world that God can't transform, um, take and transform and turn it in the direction of justice. And that's what we said. Um, uh, Even um, uh, you strip searching us, um, our God will turn in the direction of justice to see freedom for these children. And then we actually all um, took off our clothes down to our underwear and marched back to where we'd experienced this in the politician's office over a kilometre in our underwear and had over 100 people join us, and it was an even bigger media day for the movement than the one previously, um, proving just that, that there is nothing that God can't use. And I guess that Carol gets to the start of the quote, which we often overlook, about what it is to deny ourselves. We've got to be really careful about what self we're denying. Um, Drew's point around um, taking up my cross and the abuse of that kind of term um, is so poignant that if we turn the language of cross into a way to subjugate our anger to become, quote unquote, nice Christians, instead of what it is to transform injustice so that we might be witnesses to the inbreaking of the kingdom, um, we will find ourselves um, becoming uh, bitter, fake, plastic people instead of participants in god's reign and uh, we have to do the work of discerning what is the false self what are those subtle psychologies that i've internalized that make me less or more than a child of god instead of my baptismal identity of the dignity that is mine with all of god's family or all of creation as being creatures and once we discern that and die to everything else then we can take up our cross. But before then, we won't actually be able to take up our cross in any meaningful way because it will be about us um, and not about all of us, if I can play with language that way.
0: Mm. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Um, you, you you, spoke about, uh, Jared, Andrew, you guys spoke about um, some form of protest uh drew you protested in in at messiah jared uh in town and in many other places drew as well I'm wondering what's the place of civic protest in uh in good trouble, and uh, nonviolent direct action. What's the place of that public protest in as witness?
2: Yeah, um, what's the place? I mean, I think it's, it's, I, it almost seems the, it's the inevitable way that <laughs> one will go if one follows Jesus, right? Um, um, so. I don't know how we can participate in a world that is unjust, that harms our neighbors, um, that harms disproportionately targets people. Um, I don't know how we can live in a world and not protest against it, not bear witness against the evil, um, not speak up. To I, I get I mean I guess the question is what's the opposite of that, which is apathy, disregard. Um, lack of concern, <laughs> um, I don't know complacency I don't know you know like what is what is what is the other choice I guess um, if we don't protest against those things um, So yeah I mean for me um, I don't even know I, I, in some ways I'm not sure if I even know how to answer that question well because I don't I can't imagine um, being a loving and caring person and being a person that's concerned about the well-being of others, and not protesting, and not organizing, and not engaging in activism in the public square, in every possible way that we can dream up together, conspire with friends, and scheme and plots about you know how to respond to what's going on. Um, and so you know whether it, I mean for me I I I feel like Jared is the more the guru on the 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 um just the in fact I've used his he was talking about um, him um, getting strip searched and then under, I've used that little video clip <laughs> I've shared that with students um, just to awaken their imagination to creative protest right creative ways of bearing witness against evil but um but for me you know whether it be um, just so many uh, killings of black people um, I mean I've Whenever I'm invited, whether it be speaking or just participating, I'm there. I'm present, um, and I can't, I can't fathom not being present in the public square, um, sharing our frustr our collective frustrations and pains and anger and hopes for something else, right? Um, and then also then, I mean, a lot of the work I do is the organizing work, um, to try to pursue and work towards something new. And so, um, yeah, to follow Jesus is in some ways, a life of protest. So long as evil continues to reign, um, that is by definition, I think a part of discipleship to Jesus Christ. Yeah. I remember,
0: yeah, I remember a Few years ago, maybe two or three years ago, uh, there was a protest in Nairobi about public health. Uh, the state of the public hospital, uh, the one, the main public hospital in the country, and actually in Eastern and Central Africa. And uh, on the very same day, guess what was happening? Less than one or two kilometers away, it was the national prayer breakfast in State <laughs> and I, I was crying and breaking in my heart because I, I thought, to imagine the impacts that would happen if all those people at the national prayer breakfast mm. matched with us. Yeah. You know, like what if they matched with us and said uh, we are also protesting bad public health right. you imagine what that would mean and it was when those tears were flowing i was protesting and i felt god's tell me that protest is prayer is prayer on its
1: feet that's right that's right yeah that's right that's right
0: is prayer on, on, on its feet protest is prayer so keep keep at it keep at it keep at it and so yeah, so I was uh, adding that as Drew was uh, was winding up because that was what I remembered when you were talking. Mm-hmm. Jared was the place of civic protest, in faith?
1: In fact, Carol, um, and I think from memory, I might be stealing from Carl Barth. I'm not. I'm not much of a Barthian. Um, Uh, But um, I was going to start with prayer is the first protest we engage with. And I think I might have nicked that from Bart. um, uh, I'll I'll Google it later. Um, And I I don't mean that in that might sound kind of pious or uh, I I mean, in the sense of actually discerning what is that true and false self? What what is that baptismal self that um, to, to borrow from John Christostom's um, liturgy returns us to our ancient beauty. but what's what's that our identity that um, uh, what has been done to us and what we've done to others, the systems that we've participated in, yet there is something deeper um, that uh, uh, God's very um, image is actually re- reflected mm-hmm. there. and then to to discern um, uh, what that is, and to live out of that space um, brings you to a very different place because i'm a little nervous that um, sometimes people can get really excited and not um, actually discern um, either what is going on in them um, or what is going on in their context and so you end up a bit like photocopying the answers out of the back of the book not realizing that the textbook's been updated and the questions are actually completely different And um, the the difference, I love Drew's answer when he uh, talked about that this isn't, um, uh, and I'm going to butcher what you're saying, uh, Drew, but hopefully capture the essence, that this isn't like a suicide wish. Um, The the difference for me in Australia, um, given how um, our system works, for me uh, growing up um, middle class, straight, white, male, like all the ways that I'm uh, perceived and and the things that um, I can benefit from and what it is to, for me to risk in this context versus when I was working in places like Israel-Palestine, uh, when I was working in places like Romania and Albania, Georgia, um, and the, the kind of situations that um, when I was working in the Middle East and Eastern Europe, uh, um, uh, training people there, th- there are very different risks involved. Um, For for Drew to consider nonviolent direct action in the US as a black man in 2021, and for Jared to consider nonviolent direct action um, in Australia in 2021, and for Carol to consider nonviolent direct action in 2021 in Nairobi, Kenya, Mm -hmm. they are different considerations. And sometimes we're so quick to um, you know, we all love Luke four, right? Like um, us, just to see types. That, that's where we go, and we jump straight into eighteen. I wish we'd read down to thirty. Verse thirty is actually so key. Like verse thirty is when we get to um, uh, like. Uh, let me turn there and, and read it um, directly. Um, uh, so twenty nine reads: They got up and drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of a hill. Um, in which the town was built in order to throw him down a cliff. Now, if Jesus just wanted to like photocopy the answers about protests and how to make a scene for justice or whatever, he would have just let himself be pushed off. If Jesus just came to die because blood needed to be shed so people could be forgiven, Jesus would have just let himself be pushed off. But our Lord was discerning what the one who he calls in prayer, Abba, was doing. And so instead, verse 30 He walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Mm. Jesus knew his way. He knew what hour it was. He knew what it was to set his face like flint. He was completely realistic about what it was to embody the the one who hears the cries of the oppressed and answers in Exodus 3 with a burning bush, that he was going to be that burning bush, albeit on a hill outside a town at Calvary. And yet he knew that it wasn't just simply um, uh, spectacle and and doing the dramatic because of what he had said no to in the desert. We need to actually produce activists who say no to everything Satan offers in the desert instead of um, saying yes to Satan and pretending we're doing it for Jesus. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> or thinking that um, God desires sacrifice instead of mercy, reversing the words of our Lord. Uh, what it is for us to, to know our way, what we're called to, our vocation, and to do that, I think, requires a people. Um, and so my encouragement to people would be don't, don't simply photocopy. Let prayer be the place where we first discern the protests that we're participating in and realising that it's embodying the life of Jesus, which is the life of the world to come in this moment now and inviting others into it, but being completely realistic that it might cost us our lives. Yeah.
0: And, and then I keep saying this, that for, for people who who are promised of an eternal life. I, and again, we are not saying go get yourself killed. We are saying that this is not the end. Because I have found my fellow comrades uh, in in human rights defenders that I have found in the streets, in, in, in the informal settlements. Who are ready, who are ready to to take to have their lives uh, taken for the sake of freedom. But we are saying again it's not a mission it's not a mission to death for all of us. Yeah. It's not intentional to go die. But I always say that for for believers who know that there is definitely life after death. We we should consider what it is it means to to take up that cross. Yeah, and as we were speaking uh, at Subversive Seminary, is that it hurts? The cross is not is not easy, and even for Jesus when he he rose up, I'm sh- I was saying I'm sure he was like mm. I'm alive, it worked, you know <laughs> 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 but to 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 consider that that this world was good and is good, and we need to do all we can.
1: yeah
0: as the church, with all that God has given us and gifted us, we need to do all we can. To keep, to, to make it good, to keep it good, to be yeah. good. And what that means is that because there are people who for capital, uh, for power, for, for all other reasons, are fully intent on, on making the world bad right. and keeping things bad and breaking that relationship, we need to be ready. To
1: know what to do with that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Ka- Carol and Drew, um, to to invite you back into my vulnerability, it was actually Matthew 16 that gave me the confidence after a dream. Mm. Uh, so I woke from a dream and very disturbed, um, and it was actually this passage that gave me the confidence to expose all the things that had happened years before. Mm. And it's because I knew what it was to deny myself was, wasn't was deny that God created self, mm. but to deny that my identity was tied up in all the things that needed to stay covered up mm. for it to work. And taking up the cross, meaning that all of this could fall apart. This village that I love, that I'd grown up in, these friendships, like... Um, uh, people that I dearly loved who, who blamed me, who, um, and it, it was a confidence of the, the cross means all these things can be unmasked mm-hmm. and resurrection will have the last word. And I share that just as a way of encouragement, hoping it can draw parallels for other people. Um, that the, the cross is never the silencing of the victim, the, the, the cross is always where the voice of the victim is allowed to speak in light of resurrection. And it unmasks all the systems that constantly work so hard to cover up all the lies.
2: Yeah.
0: yeah. Oh. It's good. yeah. It's good. We are winding up this conversation. Do you have anything that has come up for you um, cutting short or something that's come up in the conversation.
2: It was interesting hearing you guys, as you guys talked about math, because I think for me, it was Luke 9, 23, the Luke's version, right? Luke 9, 23, um, that has been a reoccurring, which, I mean, it was something we were taught from as children, right? So um, this willingness, um, to live fully for, for Christ. Um, and I think that, that, has always continued to grow my understanding of that passage as I've tried to actually follow Jesus it has continued to expand um, its meaning for me um, because it has I guess I do think there was a way in which it was like oh, I've got to live sacrificially was like how I was initially you know taught it and now it's you know I'm invited to to live. Fully human as Jesus Christ imagines me and others to live. um, And that the fear of any consequences, right? Death and all consequences ought not to um, diminish and smother um, me living into God's reign, um, me living fully as God desires for me to live. And so that's been my hope, my desire, certainly struggle sometimes. Sometimes you, you, you fall back, you shrink back at times, and you look back, you're like, oh, Drew, you know, um, God has so much more for us. And for even when you are confronting, um, it's actually wanting what's best for all of us. I mean, I think for me, a theology of shalom connected to a theology of the way of the cross can help it from, you know, becoming something unhealthy, um, where it's not just death, um, but it is really life-giving for everybody and, and the flourishing and thriving of everyone. Um, and that to invite people into a better way of living, even in the midst of empire and institutions that are you know, unjust and policies that target certainly my community, black and brown and poor people, disproportionately people with mental health um, challenges, folks... You know who are um, who are homeless, and it, it, to think about um, how can we collectively link arms and just bear witness to this better way to pursue it, to hunger and thirst for it. Um, so I'm grateful for. So I, you know, I talked about King and stuff, but friends, right, in my own life, who. Yeah. Um, you know, as they say, imitate, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, just friends in my own life who I've been journeying alongside of to be able to see that. And hopefully I also do that for them as well, right? That oh, that um, my way of life bears witness to the reign of God for them, that the story of Jesus is made visible for them um, in my life as well. And so, yeah, I, I think that that is, is the heart of it, right? Um, and if we're... T- Fully giving ourselves over to God's reign and pursuing God's dream, then I think, um, it, on one hand, the cross in some form will be inevitable, right? That clash and confrontation is <laughs> inevitable. But, but it's also not, uh, yeah. It's there's some there's something beautiful and exciting about um, co conspiring and scheming and plotting for,
1: for the well being of all. Yeah. Yeah. So beautiful, Drew. And, and to say clearly, we, we don't need to go looking for the cross; it'll it'll Wait, find us. You don't. You don't need
2: to. <laughs> it'll,
1: it'll, you do need. It has to. a way of. Um, and and Drew and Carol, um, you for me are. Uh, I mean, John Lewis talked about the the beloved community was the kingdom of God on earth, and you for me are part of um, the beloved community for me. And um, those who inspire me and and keep my eyes on the prize and keep me seeking first the reign of God and God's healing justice, knowing everything else, it'll fall into place. It'll it'll all come together. And um, I find it helpful that whether we're in Matthew or Luke, to remember that these instructions come as a word of correction. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> to to the one that Jesus is like, uh, you're going to be the foundation of the church. And as Cornel West reminds us, um, a part of Jesus choosing Peter is that it the, the church as an institution is crooked
2: mm-hmm. and rotten
1: from the start. Like, it, okay. it's not a great foundation. Like, it gets it wrong. Jesus trusts Peter who gets the confession right and the contents completely wrong. The confession, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the whole gospel. Peter got it. And then goes, yeah, but not like that, Jesus. And it's like, get behind me, Satan. We as the church, we constantly, I mean, we very rarely get the confession wrong that Jesus is the Messiah, but we're constantly getting wrong the content. And the content is corrected by participating in what we see in Jesus in the power that he did it in that is open to us because of Pentecost. The power that rose Jesus from the grave wants to work in our lives so that we might participate in what Jesus has done. And if, if we keep the meaning, the content found in the practicalities of denying our false selves, discovering our true dignity, our God-creative selves, taking up our cross and following Jesus, it's amazing. Well, um, to go back to John Lewis, he talked about that um, it's first revulsion, people's response before its redemption. So let's not be surprised when in the church or in larger society, an embodiment of the love of God is met with revulsion and then we see redemption. Mm. That's the encouragement for us.
0: Wow, Jared, thank you guys. Um, I think for me as we, as I try to, there's no way I can, <laughs> I can crystallize or wrap up all the, all the beautiful um, introspective and vulnerable and inspiring conversations we've had but I don't know. if you're coming back to Micah six eight that God has already hmm. shown what is good. So we are not uh, we are not the originators of good. We could never originate good. We are not. Uh, good is not is not. Good is not where we we are not the one who thought up good initially, that God has shown it to us. And so God is good. And because God is good, one, I can trust him. But on the mm-hmm. other, he requires of me to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. And so it is because of the goodness of God and the goodness of, of creation, of the created, that which is a continuous process creation and the creative of the community as possible and that we speak of trouble so thank Amen. you everybody for, for listening in and as always um please share this to friends family neighbors your colleagues and remember to keep doing justice Hmm. If you've been inspired, challenged, and or enjoyed this conversation and would like to contribute to this and catch up with more of such, remember to follow us on social media at Trust, share this podcast with your friends and family, and also consider making a donation to support the production of this podcast. Donations can be made through PayPal, Msingikenya at gmail.com, Patreon at Kenya, or through M-Pesa. Plus +254792176030 Bahirini and thank you for joining us